Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode three of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic, prophylaxis. It's a big one, and we dive in right after this quick message. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com. Prophylaxis. It's a big idea. It's a big word and a big commitment. And given the emphasis on prophylaxis for children, it often involves a caregiver as much as it does a young patient. For this reason, while working on this episode, I decided to call a real expert in prophylaxis and its benefits, my mom. Hi, mom. I just started the recording. So thanks for doing this. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions related to starting prophylaxis. Sure. Do you remember how you felt when I'd started prophylaxis? Oh, of course I do. I mean, you were just so happy. You weren't missing as much school. You were having very few bleeds outside of it. And I was so, so happy to see you pain-free and being able to participate in, in life like all your little friends were. Of course, I was quite happy about it. Very happy. Do you ever remember feeling overwhelmed or, or burdened by any of this? No, I didn't. Okay. Well, that's a simple question. Gets a simple answer. I'll take it. I mean, I just felt like it just changed your life. And for those few minutes, a couple of times a week, it just, to me, was it was worth it to see my child happy and, and healthy. So I never felt burdened or overwhelmed by it. No, never. Well, thanks, Mom. And thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You'll hear from Mama Sue again later in the episode, but let's zoom out for a moment and set the stage for this episode's broader conversation around prophylaxis, its promise, achievements, shortcomings, and areas for future investigation. The concept of bleeding prevention, or prophylaxis, for persons with severe hemophilia emerged in Sweden over half a century ago, as our contributors will speak to shortly. The goal of the original treatment protocols and the early modifications was to use an infusion regimen of clotting factor to maintain a minimum circulating plasma level of clotting factor, thereby decreasing the very high frequency of hemophilia musculoskeletal hemorrhage in order to preserve joint and muscle health and function. In the decades that followed, the practice of preventing rather than treating bleeding episodes after they occur was adopted and studied across the globe. Its definitive role in cost-effectively improving joint health when started in young children was proven in a national U.S. randomized trial, which, again, you'll hear contributors expand upon a bit later. But early joint outcomes from prophylaxis were not optimal, and research done across the world strove to better understand and improve joint health in severe hemophilia. During the course of this investigation, it became clear that optimization meant personalization based on numerous factors such as biology, a person's overall musculoskeletal health, and both his or her desired lifestyle and physical activity levels. 
The understanding that targets for effective minimum factor levels were in the 15 to 20 percent range prompted a closer look at the joint health of persons with moderate and mild hemophilia, including women with hemophilia, and pointed to the potential need for prophylaxis for some of these individuals as well. Furthermore, although initially investigated primarily in severe hemophilia A, similar studies were later pursued to optimize prophylaxis in severe hemophilia B. However, even as joint outcomes and health-related quality of life improved with prophylaxis, as they did, the burden of frequent intravenous factor administration on children and their families increased at the same pace, often requiring indwelling catheters or otherwise making sustained compliance difficult. The development of extended half-life factor 8 and factor 9 treatments over the past 15 years was intended to optimize prophylaxis, and we'll get into that, as well as how the landscape for hemophilia A prophylaxis changed dramatically with the recent licensure of emicizumab. And we'll discuss how gene therapy holds similar promise for optimizing prophylaxis if factor 8 and 9 levels known to be effective in preventing bleeding can be maintained. Prophylaxis and the intensive study into it has enabled significant progress. But recent studies suggest that although the overall musculoskeletal health of persons with hemophilia has significantly improved, the goal of attaining a level of musculoskeletal health comparable to that of the general population without hemophilia has still not been achieved. Furthermore, the impact of prophylaxis has been uneven across hemophilia populations and the promise of greater physical activity free of hemorrhage has not been entirely fulfilled. This episode explores the extraordinary progress, complex considerations, and areas for ongoing study as it relates to prophylaxis in hemophilia. The primary discussion for this episode was held between Dr. Marilyn Menko Johnson and Dr. Catalyne Fisher. Dr. Maria Alicia Mancuso joined for portions as well, and those three contributors also served as advisors in constructing this episode. Global Hemophilia Report senior advisor Dr. Donna DiMichele can also be heard from time to time. In addition, I spoke with Dr. Robert Sidonio and Dr. Manuel Carqueo, whose contributions are woven into the conversation as well. To get started, let's establish when it was that prophylaxis in hemophilia first got started. Dr. Fisher, if you would please introduce yourself and walk us through that. Hello, everyone. My name is Kathleen Fisher. I'm a pediatric hematologist and I work at the Van Creveld Clinic uh, at the University Medical Center Utrecht, the Netherlands. It all started with uh, Professor Inga Marie Nielsen in the 1950s when she devised a method to make a kind of cryo-precipitate from donor plasma. And she was against the will of her hospital director. She was giving her patients this cryo-precipitate to prevent bleeding. She gave it to them a couple of times a week. And it was so successful that she started to increase this treatment and spread it and give it to more patients. And it became established and for instance in the Netherlands we started 10 years later in the late 60s when the Judith Poole had invented cryoprecipitate. So this was the beginning of prophylaxis and it spread throughout uh, Europe and it was also used in the United States but then there was this reimbursement issue and Marilyn Menko Johnson did this very important randomized control trial that led to the final evidence that prophylaxis was working. 
My name is Marilyn Manko Johnson. I'm a pediatric hematologist and a co-director of the Hemophilia Thrombosis Center at the University of Colorado. So when this study was started, it was developed in 1994 and patients started enrollment in 1995-96. And at that time, fewer than 10% of patients in the U.S. received prophylaxis, a a very small number. There were concerns about effects of long-term exposure to factor VIII. In young children, there were uh, concerns about doing venipuncture frequently. There were concerns about using a port, that the ports fracture, they cause thrombosis, they get infected. And, And our hypothesis shared with the patients when we started this study is that we do believe that the prophylaxis treatment will be associated with better joint and bone outcome, but we just don't know what the cost of ports, infections, psychosocial effects. Many parents were worried that children would develop psychological problems from being poked every other day through life. And the purpose of the study, the joint outcome study, was to look at the relative risks and benefits to see how they shook out. Prior to the HIV epidemic, plasma products were very inexpensive. They kind of had gone from a few cents up to 10 cents per unit. And then after HIV, we developed recombinant proteins, which immediately uh, were put on the market at about a dollar a unit. So that the price went up 10 times. And there was a lot of concerns, I think, as Dr. Fisher was suggesting about the fiscal sustainability of giving prophylaxis. So this is a rare disease, even in the U.S., which is a big country. So when we enrolled for the joint outcome study, we actually enrolled 10% of all the babies born in the U.S. with severe hemophilia over the two and a half years that we enrolled. So that was uh, an enormous success, showing that the parents themselves were very supportive of joining a study and getting the data. And really, the whole credit of the study uh, is to them because our adherence and our participation was just about 100% for the entire duration of the study. One of the parents that you could always count on to say yes to their kids participating in studies, especially when it came to prophylaxis, was, you guessed it, Mama Sue. What do you remember about prophylaxis when you first heard about it? Well, hearing about it from the treatment center, I didn't know anybody personally who had 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 it, but it was suggested to us by Dr. D. McKelly. It made sense to me. We went forward with it, and it was the best thing we ever did, actually. Why do you say it was the best thing we ever did? Well, there was a marked difference in your comfort and frequency of bleed. I mean, it was very rare for you to get a bleed when you were on prophylaxis. I think because if there was a little bleed starting, having it in your system three times a week, you were always covered. And also, when we knew you would be having some kind of physical activity, we could always kind of work the prophylaxis around that. So I never saw any downside to it at all. I I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to do it. Are there people that don't want to do it? You can hear the fierce mama bear coming out there at the end as though defending the honor of prophylaxis. But as Dr. Manko Johnson just pointed out, some parents have concerns related to venous access, port use, and the psychologic impact of such frequent sticks. And as Dr. Moncuso is about to point out, there are additional complicated reasons why some patients have been slow to adopt prophylaxis. Uh, good day, everyone. I'm Marilisa Mancuso. I am an hematologist uh, dealing with uh, patients with bleeding disorder in Humanitas Research Hospital in Milan, Italy. You know, in Italy, 
primary prophylaxis arrived uh, rather late in comparison with other countries, and this was uh, pretty much related to the, the tragedy of the bloodborne viral infections, which had a, a very bad impact psychologically, of course, on the hemophilic community. I mean that there was reluctance uh, on accepting regular infusion in those years. But I have to say that now, of course, prophylaxis is indeed also in our country, in Italy, standard of care for all patients, uh, for sure with severe bleeding phenotype, but we are also enlarging this concept to every patient who may benefit not only from a clinical standpoint, but also looking at their aspiration, motivation, lifestyle. The idea of enlarging the concept of prophylaxis raises an interesting point that prophylaxis is not a one-size-fits-all type of plan. If prophylaxis in hemophilia was first introduced in the 1950s by Professor Nielsen and validated later by studies like the Joint Outcomes Study, then one might point to the Canadian Dose Escalation Study as one that greatly helped refine our understanding of how best to approach prophylaxis for each individual patient. In, in society, we all recognize that we're all different. And because we're all different, that our needs for prophylaxis, or at least the patient needs for prophylaxis, may be actually quite different. My name is Manuel Carcao. I'm a pediatric hematologist in Toronto, Canada, and work at the Hospital for Sick Children, and have been looking after patients with hemophilia for over 20 years now. Some patients may need more frequent prophylaxis, and other patients may need less frequent prophylaxis. And the reason why patients are different from each other, well, it's pretty obvious. I mean, when you look at people, <laughs> we all look different. So we're clearly different. But we're different in many respects. We're different in terms of our blood group, and that has an impact on things like uh, hemophilia and, and prophylaxis. We're different in our general ability to clot, irrespective of how much factor we have or not. Some people just clot more, some people clot less and hence bleed more. We're also different in our physical activities. Some people are really active, they play a lot of sports and other people prefer to play the piano or to read. So the needs of patients are different. So the idea behind the Canadian dose escalation study was to take young children and start them on, let's say an easier prophylaxis, meaning not as frequent and in some cases, some of these patients would still do quite well, but some wouldn't, and we would then have to escalate the prophylaxis. And many were escalated, and they required more frequent prophylaxis. And the reason why this was started in very young children is to give uh, needles to, to anyone with hemophilia is difficult. But to give every other day needles to a one-year-old or a two-year-old is incredibly difficult. And so the idea was maybe they could do well or reasonably well with once a week infusion of factor. And because they're not as active, they're clearly not playing football, <laughs> they're not playing hockey, maybe that would be sufficient to protect them. So it really is the idea of tailoring or individualizing. These are, are, are terms that have really gained a lot of traction in the hemophilia world to tailor treatment to the patient itself. So, with the learnings of the dose escalation study and other studies aimed at treatment individualization in mind, 
How does tailoring a treatment regimen to a patient play out in the clinic? How do clinicians account for patients' perspectives and aspirations in the process? Well, I feel that I'm there to give the patient advice and education. I don't feel that I make the treatment program for any patient. So I ask a boy, let me tell you about hemophilia, how it works, factor what PKs are, how they work. Now you tell me, what what do you want to do? What's important in your life? I just tell them what what we can do to prevent bleeding, what the risks are. And and then, of course, with children, always that it's the final decision maker is the parent. That I'm not, I can't say yes or no. And I've been very, very impressed that when this is their choice and their commitment, that, that their adherence and their work on it has been really impressive and inspirational. I can echo that. If we want to personalize treatment, it's also often a natural process because you, the boy comes to you as a baby and you witness the journey. But it's, it's a joint process and really we, we take the journey with them. We'll continue the journey and discussion right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries, an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, Visit SanofiHemophilia.com. Welcome back. In the first section, we heard about the introduction of prophylaxis, some of the reasons adoption of it was slow, and we heard about some of the studies that have proved its value and helped us begin to understand how to personalize prophylaxis for each individual patient. So at this point in the discussion, I asked our contributors a somewhat delicate question. Overall, how has prophylaxis as a strategy delivered? And in what ways has it failed to meet its promise? I think that we achieved a huge amount. We had boys who were in wheelchairs, boys who were limping, boys who could not run, could not participate in any activities. And today, throughout Europe and and the U.S., we have boys who are routinely playing soccer, they're playing basketball, they're running, they're skiing. They look very much like their peers. So from an external vision, we have been phenomenally successful. If you look at the margin of the small areas where we've not been successful, we, we, we have not completely prevented a joint disease. And I wanted to just comment on our joint outcome study. We followed these boys until they were 18 years old. And they took uh, 25 units per kilo of factor eight every other day, either starting at age one to two or starting at age six. And by the time they were 18, 35% of the boys who started at age one year and took these IV infusions every other day had at least one joint with bone or cartilage damage. That's huge. A third of the boys had uh, at least one abnormal joint, whereas those who started at age six, 77%. 
And these uh, were all uh, as judged by MRI imaging. And then a little bit greater than 50% of the joints actually had MRI evidence of some blood, some synovial thickening or hemosiderin by the time they were 18. So, so I think that that showed that even with very intensive therapy, we were not preventing all joint disease. We sort of kick the can down the road when it comes to joint bleeding and hemarthropathy, right? My name is Robert Sidonio Jr. I'm a pediatric hematologist, associate professor of pediatrics in Atlanta, Georgia. We know even with perfect prophylaxis implemented fairly early in young children, in men and women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, in the prime of their lives, right? We're talking about the prime of people's lives. You start to see the effects of long-term repeated joint bleeding and potentially some of the micro-bleeding. I agree that we are still not perfect and factor prophylaxis has not achieved perfect joint health. But I think we cannot achieve that ever with prophylaxis because we cannot account for trauma. Trauma is going to happen anyway. We all know adults without hemophilia who have problems with their joints after injuries. So injuries occur, trauma occurs, and then we have non-adherence to prophylaxis. And then we have the adult patients who have already joint abnormalities, vascular changes. I really agree that our frontier right now is trauma, trauma and surgery. And we just, we really are, are not as successful as we'd like to be. So what kind of studies are currently looking into trauma and surgery that will help us better understand prophylaxis? There is a U.S. national study that's looked at many, many surgeries in hemophilia out of the University of North Carolina and, and now Denver, and the data has not been analyzed yet. But I think that may uh, give us some information about outcomes of surgery in patients with hemophilia. I don't think we've yet are doing the kinds of very intensive, maybe ultrasound imaging with intensive factor replacement to understand exactly what was happening around, around these traumas. Kathleen, you have a comment? Yes, we're just finishing a study where we have followed 125 patients, half of them severe, half of them non-severe hemophilia, who are regularly playing sports. And we contacted them every two weeks, so we know all about their sports traumas, their other traumas, and their bleeds. And we are currently analyzing this because we wanted to give better advice on how if you can play sports safely. And from the preliminary data, I can say that the number of sports injuries are the same as in general population and that the vast majority of injuries does not lead to bleeds. One thing that I think we have all done very intensively that should be mentioned is that when you're engaging in an intense sport, you need a higher level than maybe you're going to be on the PK curve of uh, standard uh, factor eight. So a, a routine standard recommendation is to give smaller doses of factor eight right before participation in sports games and very active practices. And this has been very successful. I, I totally agree, but we do it differently. We say you have to plan your regular prophylaxis according to your sports schedule. So certainly before a soccer match and before the soccer training, but it is your regular prophylaxis. And only if you play super high level sports, then you just go to daily infusion pasta, no discussion. But we don't give no, extra I, I dose. You know, we generally tailor it to the prophylaxis schedule too, but I, I would consider it extra yeah. if you're going every day or five days a week when you're playing. It's just a different of semantics. 
Uh, I also want to emphasize that prophylaxis is super successful for our patients. I mean, we are now talking about all the things that we have not achieved yet, but we should emphasize that we have achieved very much and that our boys are playing sports while their grandfathers have been lying in bed for, for months, a year. And we have also many parents that are scared to let their children play. And now they see what joy it gives them to just participate. And, you know, even after age 12, to learn to self-infuse and, and do be independent. It's wonderful, I think. Dr. Fisher is, of course, correct that prophylaxis has enabled so much. But she also cited non-adherence earlier when discussing why prophylaxis can never lead to perfect joint health. Let's explore that a bit more. What prevents patients from adhering? It's just a reality that prophylaxis is difficult. Up until recently, prophylaxis meant that patients would have to receive injections, that means needles into their veins, on a regular basis. And by regular basis, I mean in many cases, every other day. So you can count how many needles that is over a course of a year by taking 365 and dividing it by two. You're looking at about 182 needles a year. That's not easy. So life has been tough for people with uh, hemophilia. They are protected from bleeds, but on the other hand, they need to get 182 needles every single year, year after year after year. That's the hardship of prophylaxis, but it works. A thought that, uh, a common thought that injecting frequently as is done during regular prophylaxis uh, is really a burden. To me, uh, at least uh, from my experience and also, you know, shared experience with patients, I learned that for some of them, the concept of burden of the disease translates this burden in the burden of prophylaxis. Because prophylaxis reminds them constantly the existence of the disease. If you talk with them, they recognize the benefits of prophylaxis. And in the end, the, the, the conclusion is always that prophylaxis is good. I've had two nurses who did PhD projects on research on adherence and the reasons for non-adherence. And there were two main drivers. One was acceptance, just as Dr. Mancuso said, very important. And the other one was self-efficacy, so inability to do it. Really, they found it too difficult. There are some, uh, let's say, objective limitations in some cases because you may have problems with venous access and so prophylaxis becomes difficult. And we did also focus groups. There we saw huge results and it was all about the acceptance. And if you're still struggling with accepting, you don't want to do the treatment because it reminds you of being a patient. I agree. I think acceptance is major. All of my career, I felt that acceptance is the first challenge in hemophilia. Acceptance of the child, but first acceptance of the parents, and that the parents must accept the diagnosis. But a, a second issue, I think, are family and community norms. In Colorado, we're a very active state. It's very normal to ski and run and bicycle. And when parents come in and say, okay, my child, I'm told my child has hemophilia, what is that? We start right away with he will ski and run and bicycle and play sports like everyone else. And I think linking prophylaxis is the treatment that allows you to participate with everyone is accepted very well. 
And so I think that sports and activity are a critical part of hemophilia. And we start with families when babies are born, your child must be active, that joints need to move to be healthy and to grow. So, so we're no longer focusing on limiting activity, but, but promoting activity, particularly in those who, who don't want to. If you keep bringing up the issue and, and presenting people who are having very active, healthy lives, I think you make the community norm of people with hemophilia such that prophylaxis is the norm. Prophylaxis may be the norm for severe hemophilia, and the benefits, as articulated by our contributors, make clear why. But what about its use for patients with mild and moderate hemophilia? Do they, or could they, stand to benefit from prophylaxis as well? Our products have gotten really good over the last few years. Some of these products are so good that we've taken these severe patients that have absolutely no factor circulating in their plasma, and we've made them more of the mild patients. And now you kind of shift down and, you know, it's like a little effect. Now you move over, the severes move over to become milds, and now the moderates are the new severes. If you look at various data sets and surveillance projects, probably about 40 to 50% of moderate patients, mostly moderate hemophilia A more than moderate hemophilia B, are on prophylaxis at some point in their lives. We're really hopeful that we'll start to see more and more uh, moderate children start on prophylaxis and stay on it so they can see those benefits. Well, for the moderate patients, I think it's becoming more and more evident that very low factor levels, so one, two, three percent, have a considerable bleeding risk. Those are very rare patients, so it's a really difficult group to study. Even in, in mild hemophilia patients, for those particularly under 15 to 20 percent, there may be some benefit for some of those patients, maybe not all of them. The WFH guidelines clearly stated that regardless of the actual severity, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe, if you have a severe bleeding phenotype, you should consider replacement therapy or prophylaxis. Well, if you have 7, 10% factor rate, in our experience, if you play American football or you're, you're wrestling or doing um, uh, rodeo, th this is not a high enough factor rate to sustain you. I really think we need a safe, cost-effective therapy for mild patients to get them up to 20 to 30% so that they can fully participate in life. If, if you have these mild patients and he's sit, only sitting on the couch, <laughs> he's inactive, he probably won't not need anything. But if he wants to play, I'm hearing rodeo, which I find, <laughs> this would be on my no-go list, I think, <laughs> like boxing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, then I can imagine that you need extra factor. But it's interesting, there's a various number of studies. If you take a mild patient to adulthood and they say, well, you know, I've only had maybe one or zero joint bleeds. If you do MRIs, you'll see that they have evidence of joint bleeds. About 20% of them will. We looked at the rate of joint change by uh, physical exam scores in the mild, moderate, and severe hemophilia. And, and our uh, results were that moderate Factor eight deficiency is very similar to severe in terms of the progression of joint damage, whereas moderate factor nine deficiency is like the milds. So I just consider two categories. And in eight, it's severe and moderate versus mild. And in nine, it's, it's severe versus moderate and mild. 
I just wanted to answer to Kathleen that I did go to the rodeo this year, and I was like shocked. They, they, this is the children and teenagers, and they they ride. They actually were standing up on horses, and they were doing cartwheels on top of the horses. And these are without hemophilia. And then they would ride two horses with one foot on each horse. And then they have the little children, four and five years old. It's called mutton busting, and and this was on our uh, national uh, public radio as a joke quiz. Uh, you know, they give you three crazy things, and which one's true? And the true one was. In Colorado, they do mutton busting. So these four or five-year-olds, they get these little tiny children and they put them on top of a sheep and they have to grab on and they count how many seconds they can stay on the sheep while the sheep's uh, running around trying to throw them off. <laughs> and it's in other cultures, it, it would be indefensible, but uh, it's it's apparently uh, it's important. You, you need better cultural events. <laughs> <laughs> we need some culture. <laughs> If everybody has to resort to mutton busting for, you know, entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's all they had in the 19th century. We'll continue our discussion on mutton busting, I'm sorry, prophylaxis, right after this quick break. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds and hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. Welcome back. Several years ago, factor replacement therapies with extended factor half-lives were licensed in both hemophilia A and B. This enabled, in general, a step forward in optimizing prophylaxis and hemophilia management. But as our contributors are about to make clear, the step forward was maybe a bit bigger for those with hemophilia B as opposed to those with hemophilia A. Talking about prophylaxis in hemophilia originally was exclusively related to hemophilia A because hemophilia B in the past was quite completely neglected. I mean, there are some differences, but in terms of developing arthropathy or also bleeding frequency, hemophilia B patients, they do deserve prophylaxis as hemophilia A patients. Of course, the advent of extended half-life in hemophilia B was the big revolution at the beginning because of the you know, pretty much larger extension of half-life and very uh, good improvement in PK profile. Extended half-life products have been very beneficial, particularly for hemophilia B, where the extended half-life products are much more extended than what we had before. In the past, with hemophilia B, it was like 100 infusions a year. And now we're looking at 52 infusions or possibly 26 infusions. That is a tremendous benefit, particularly from a quality of life point of view. With the extended half-life, I have to say that almost 100% of my severe and moderate hemophilia B in the end accepted to be treated on prophylaxis. Interesting. Well, I I think that the long-acting factor nines have been remarkably successful. I think children playing sports can take the uh, long-acting factor nines once a week. Adults who are working out in the gym and having uh, desk jobs can take it every two weeks and do just fine. For severe factor nine deficiency, of course, a cure would be better, but the treatment seems very tolerable. In hemophilia A, the advantage of extended half-life 
has been there. It's not quite as much, but still, the average patient is able to reduce the number of injections that they need by one a week. That's still 52 less injections per year. That is significant, and I think that particularly for children, they appreciate that and their, their families appreciate that. My big issue is being a pediatrician is that children did not experience the advantage of extended half-life factors. When we looked at either pegylated or conjugated factor rates in children compared to the uh, standard half-life, either full gene or the uh, beta domain deleted factor rates, they uh, had no improvement. So first of all, the plasma-derived factor rates had a half-life of 12 to 14 hours in children. And then when we use these recombinants, many of them had half-lives as short as uh, four, six, eight hours. And we, we lost a lot of the durability of the factor when we went to recombinant, although we got the viral safety. And when we went to extended half-life, many, many children had no extension of half-life at all. But those who did had maybe 10, 12 hours, 14 hours. So they really were not functionally extended. And I think that this was a benefit primarily given to the adults. While extended half-life treatments may not benefit children with hemophilia A nearly as much as those for children with hemophilia B, the introduction of emicizumab just a few years back created a whole new way of considering both the benefits and burdens of prophylaxis in hemophilia A. But before we hear from our contributors on that, let's dig a little deeper into a complexity of hemophilia that has started to bubble up here and which is unique to hemophilia B. Unlike its counterpart, factor VIII, factor IX does not live inside the blood vessel exclusively. It exists outside the vessel walls, too, in what's referred to as the extravascular space or interstitial space. So how do we account for that, given that our very method of administering factor IX is, after all, intravenously? I think it's interesting that the standard-acting uh, factor IX has a diffusion into the interstitial space so that the plasma recovery is much lower, but that interstitial nine is there for a purpose. So I think, especially with newborn babies and newborn babies with head bleeds, that having a factor nine that will go into the third space might be physiologically important. But our experience so far with older children and adults is that putting the factor just in the plasma seems to be fine. I think that's something that we haven't completely resolved. I do see some gaps also due to the distribution of factor 9 in our body, which is uh, part in the bloodstream, but a large part out of the vessels, so in the extravascular space. And I don't think we have a clear idea of what's happening. But my colleagues feel that these patients are on long-acting factor 9 for the duration. But then if they have surgery, they have to go to a, a short-acting factor 9 because they, quote-unquote, know how to replace them for surgery. And I feel like if they're both based on PK and it's just a different a slope of the curve, I, 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 it's beyond me to understand what about the two curves make them es essentially different. I... I, I agree and don't agree with this issue that hemophilia B is so different. We can learn still and extrapolate our experience with the prophylaxis from hemophilia A to hemophilia B. The same factor levels work. It's both the same for surgery and for bleeding and for prophylaxis, I think. And regarding the intracranial bleeds, we also treat hemophilia A intracranial bleeds with factor 8, which doesn't go out of the vessels. So 
that works too. But but so that's I, not I would, but physiologically we, we don't have yeah well but I, I'm just come it's, on. A, it's a biologic interesting yeah. curiosity. Why? It's an interesting curiosity, but I think it still works if you would treat an intracranial bleed with longer-acting uh, factor nine, and a surgery too. I mean. We do it all the time. Everybody does it. We don't switch to standard half-life uh, factor nine for surgeries, and it works fine. Oh, I agree with you. I, I was speaking about other colleagues and opinions. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But one thing to say about the newborn is there was a newborn baby, actually in North Carolina, who had intracranial hemorrhage. It was severe factor nine deficiency, and it was actually Dr. Paul Monahan who treated him, and he had to go to 30 units per kilo per hour to get a, a functional factor nine level. And maybe it was a premature baby, and it was just all diffusing into the interstitial space. And I oh felt my like God. maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe there is some physiological need for that in the very immature baby developing. So I do think that we need to understand if we can find, and this is for research, if we can find a surrogate marker of what's happening out of the vessel in the extravascular space, I see some opportunity to learn from this new experience something more about hemophilia B and the opportunity that we have to optimize prophylaxis. Further research is most definitely needed to understand more about optimizing prophylaxis in hemophilia B. But let's now shift gears and focus on hemophilia A and emicizumab. How has emicizumab impacted hemophilia A prophylaxis? And will extremely early prophylaxis on emicizumab further benefit long-term musculoskeletal health? When it comes to prophylaxis, emicizumab has really raised a number of questions. So one is, when do you start prophylaxis? We never really had the answer. We sort of knew that the earlier the better. On the other hand, we had to balance that against the fact that prophylaxis involved putting a needle into a child's arm and trying to find a vein and, and infusing them whilst they were screaming and crying and their parents were in tears. So prophylaxis, we kind of wanted to start at a young age, but it was difficult to do so. Now with emicizumab, we can start it on the day that the patient is diagnosed. It's all subcutaneous therapy, and it's infrequent therapy. We can start it, they may be diagnosed uh, at birth, at the time of uh, delivery. And we could start it there, but we're not sure. Should we start it at that point? Should we hold off until six months of age or a year of age? So those are questions that we don't really know. We don't know if by starting at a young age, we might prevent these rare occurrences of intracranial bleeding that occasionally do happen, but they're rare. But maybe we can completely eliminate that as well. I'm going to give a very strong argument that all babies should be treated with emicizumab before they get factor eight. Because in this case, if you had, and I have had, I've had premature babies who develop an inhibitor after they're given factor eight, and then it, it is extremely difficult to support them and treat them. There are two trains of thought in the U.S. One is that while you're on steady emicizumab, that you have some hemostasis so that in a steady state, you could then get factor eight exposure once a week and become tolerant to it. This has not been 
well received by our parents of babies because they feel the whole point of the emesisumab is to avoid putting a needle in their vein. Why would I want to do that? But there is a study headed by Dr. Robert Sedonia in Atlanta, and I'm extremely interested in the results, even though my patients are not extremely interested in having their children participate in that. The other approach is to say, let's just use emesisumab. And most of the experiences with factor eight are after trauma, but these traumas in kids are usually pretty mild. They're not big inflammatory traumas. So um, in doing that, you may not have a significant factor rate exposure until you're much older. When you might not need immune tolerance, but if you did, it would be technically a lot easier and, and the, the person would be psychologically more mature and understanding and it would be a, a far less traumatic event. The counter argument for trying to tolerize with eight is that if you can give all of your doses in a completely well state without any trauma, you may be less likely to induce an inhibitor. So we have used emesisumab solely in babies for the three years since it was approved, and we have not had anyone develop an inhibitor. So we were also in the Guinness Book of Records that we had a 50% inhibitor rate, 40 to 50 on different years. So to go from 40% to zero makes our staff very, very happy. I totally agree with Dr. Menke-Johnson. We have started emesisumab in all our pups at the age of two, three months. It is so fantastic. It, it is a fantastic treatment. And we have told our patients that you can consider giving factor VIII intravenously to avoid inhibitors. But none have chosen to do that. And I would not do that either if it was my child. No way. I'd like to take up this whole issue of emesisumab prophylaxis, and I have multiple questions. Global Hemophilia Report's senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly. The first is that one of the concerns about emesisumab prophylaxis is, again, how good prophylaxis is it? Even though there hasn't been clinical joint bleeding, is there microbleeding that may surprise treaters and patients at the end of the day? You can comment on that and whether you think this could be a problem. And if you do think it's a problem, what kind of study should we be doing with emesisumab prophylaxis to really understand not only the short-term impact, but the long-term impact? The education of our patients is much more difficult. If you start emesisumab prophylaxis, you miss a very intensive period with the patients where you learn parents to uh, do IV inf infusion, where you see the boys maybe a couple of times because of a bleed. We find it a challenge now because they're doing so well that they don't get experience recognizing a bleed, phoning the center. So I think we will see some micro bleeding due to trauma. And we need to re be really careful for that. I think you're right. This is a whole new world. We have actually eliminated severe hemophilia. Now we have a new disease uh, that we know a lot about from mild hemophilia. But I think we have to go systematically through all of the outcomes. So with bone biomarkers, we've looked at, I think it's 400 patients with hemophilia for just four biomarkers. And we've compared normals to emesisumab patients to standard factor A prophy. And we find that there's absolutely no difference. It's no worse than factor A prophy. So that's an important safety conclusion. Secondly is the hemostasis. And we're looking at thrombogenic generation, chromogenic 10 activation, bleeding rates, and 
we're not finding any signals that that's a problem. And then we have to look at joints. And we're looking, as Kathleen is doing, at, at annual HJHS physical exams, ultrasounds. And we've now started looking at gait. We are developing a gait lab. So I, I think that it is important that many of us do studies and try to confirm that this is no worse than the best therapy we have. But then I, I can't agree more with Dr. Fisher about the venipuncture. We are going to have a whole generation, and even if they learn how to do it, if they only need to do it once a year, it's going to be extremely difficult to stay good. So we're going to have to tell our patients, everyone has to marry a, a physician, a nurse, or we have emergency medical technologist. We have clinics on venipuncture. We're, we're trying to, to teach the children on ME how to do it. But I think this is going to be an international dilemma. I also just wanted you uh, to comment a little bit on the fact that you're already using amicizumab in infants, very young infants. So what do you think the benefit of the HAVEN-7 study is going to be? I think that HAVEN-7 study uh, will give us an important piece of knowledge because this patient population of very young children treated with amicizumab was indeed missing from the big clinical trial program through which the amicizumab has been developed. HAVEN-7 is crucial to gather a large number of babies on amicizumab to look at the inhibitor question. So some might get factor eight routinely, some might get it only for episodic needs, some might get it for a tolerizing dose when they're a little bit older. So we, we need lots of patients in the young age to, to aggregate that data and find out how to best prevent inhibitors uh, using amicizumab with the least traumatic treatment. And it will be important also under the immunogenicity standpoint. We cannot forget that we will use factor eight sooner or later in those children. So even if we understand that we have a delayed inhibitor development, of course, delayed is better than early, but still the problem will be there. So I don't think we will solve problem. Maybe we can put in perspective something that we could have never understood in the natural model. So I think uh, that this study will give us some knowledge and some opportunity to continue to design new research uh, to better understand and define what is the better approach for our young children with demophilia. Earlier, it was brought up that prophylaxis, while beneficial in significant ways, is not curative. So with gene therapy, the supposed curative therapy inching ever closer to being a commercially available treatment option for hemophilia, what impact do our contributors believe gene therapy will have on prophylaxis? And what types of outcomes from gene therapy would enable us to perfect prophylaxis and to achieve this curative state that all current methods of prophylaxis don't get to? We don't know what gene therapy is going to do. This is a grab bag, it's a black box. And so if you get to 40%, that's great. But if you have 40% coming out of your hepatocytes and they can't increase with stress, what happens when you have a big trauma? What happens when you undergo surgery? So having a low normal level might still require you to have that factor eight for some episodes in life. And, and so I think uh, if I underwent orthopedic surgery, I'd probably go to 200, 300%. I actually have a 200% factor eight all the time. So that's good for bleeding, kind of bad for heart disease. So I think that with gene therapy, we, we have the opportunity to make factor eight levels for optimal cardiovascular outcomes and bleeding outcomes. And we don't know what that is. I mean, if it were me, I would, 
I'd probably prefer to get a static 50% factor rate and take a little extra during stress periods and, and, and uh, decrease my cardiovascular risk. But, but we're going to learn a lot about that. And what about joints? What, what do you think the impact on joint health is going to be? Well, you know, there are multiple influences on joints. You have your anatomic genetic constitution, you have your genetic inflammatory constitution, and then your genetic uh, hemostatic constitution. And I think it's going to be unique for each individual. But I would think if you're above 30 or 40%, your joints probably won't have microbleeding. We'll have to find out. But I would also say regarding gene therapy, you're likely to increase the levels up to the levels of mild hemophilia or carrier patients. And some of them, I, I would find it normal that you would need extra factor for surgery or, or special situations. If you're 30, 40% all of the time, I would also suspect you have no microbleeding, but you still have traumatic bleeding. You still have the challenge of treating that adequately fast enough and long enough. So that challenge remains. But the other thing is, at what age would you get your gene therapy? Because if you can only do it in adults, which is quite likely, then you still need a period of prophylaxis before that. And for our children that we are treating now, they won't be a candidate for gene therapy for the next 10 years or so. So it's a future problem. Having now discussed what extended half-life treatments, emicizumab, and gene therapy mean, or could mean, for prophylaxis, the final area that we'll address today is the use of prophylaxis in women and girls. We know that severe hemophilia is very rarely seen in women, but earlier we heard arguments for why moderate and even some mild patients should seriously consider prophylaxis. But given that they struggle to be appreciated as anything beyond carriers in the first place, are these guidances reaching women and girls and those who take care of them? When these topics come up, I think that's what makes clinical research interesting to me. I got started in doing research in hemophilia carriers and those that have hemophilia when I had a mother tell me that she had a joint bleed and I was a little bit surprised. I was a young attending and I was like, well, how is that possible? That doesn't make any sense. I've never heard of this. And she, of course, said, you know, I know what a joint bleed is, you know. <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course, you have a kid with hemophilia. Who doesn't know what a joint bleed is? If Who's not going to know anything better than that than a mother of a hemophiliac, right? I mean, they're going to know what a bleed is. And so I took a look at the literature. There had been a couple of papers here and there. And even in the big paper in Published in Blood, if you look in the discussion section, it said, well, maybe the hemophiliac carers were confused about this question on joint bleeds. I was like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You can just look at the data. If you look at the most recent paper by Connie Miller, looking at data from the CDC, if you look at the current situation right now, about one in five mild hemophiliacs is a female. That's a pretty large number. Of course, as you move to moderate and severe, those numbers become much smaller. But that is a real force to be reckoned with. And that's just on patients that have been recorded in a national surveillance data set. There's a lot of women out there that have not been recorded, that have not been documented, that have not been tested. So that number is probably closer to like one in three mild hemophiliacs is a female. Those numbers are, are strong numbers. So certainly they're out there. For some reason, they're not being recorded. And so my plea would be for them to get documented, get recorded, 
in CDC community counts and Athen data set, and that, which allows us to collect data and allows us to people like me to publish this data to get the word out. It's really hard to argue with those facts when you know that these patients exist. If you're a woman that's XX chromosome or potentially other genotypes, and you have a level of 3%, we want people to say that you have moderate hemophilia. Of course, you're a hemophilia carrier, but when you're getting care in the emergency room and you're getting care by your surgeon, by your dentist, by your GYN, we want the term hemophilia to be front and center and then carrier to be a discussion afterwards because carrier is not relevant when it comes to receiving care for a bleeding episode. As we start to wrap up, any final words on prophylaxis research going forward? I'm an epidemiologist, so I'm very much in favor of studying the evidence that there is. So we should look at the mild patients now and look at them closely. That's why we included them in the sports study and we are doing analysis on the moderates and the mild patients because we need to study those patients. Those patients are already there. Let's look at what there is. I think that's extremely important. And I think one of your previous publications talked about a 29% rate of joint damage in moderates and what is about 10% rate milds. And and, and joint disease is, is established by age six. Yeah, so you need to be super early. Research into mild and moderate patients, into trauma and surgery, and into optimization of hemophilia B prophylaxis to account for this extravascular space issue are all some of the research priorities seeking to continue improving the ability of prophylaxis to not only protect from clinical bleeding, but to prevent long-term arthropathy and damage as well. Additionally, diagnosing, tracking, and analyzing data from women with hemophilia will also continue expanding the benefit of prophylaxis to all who could stand to benefit from its offering. I'd like to thank this episode's contributors, Dr. Marilyn Manko-Johnson, Dr. Cataline Fisher, Dr. Maria Alicia Mancuso, Dr. Robert Sedonio, Dr. Manuel Carqueo, my mom, Susan Lynch, RN, and of course, Senior Advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly. Special thanks to Drs. Manko Johnson, Fisher, and Mancuso for serving as advisors on this episode as well. For a list of links to learn more about some of the most critical research into prophylaxis happening right now, take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player, or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. Episode 4 of the Global Hemophilia Report goes live on Thursday, May 19th, and the topic is quite related to today's. The topic is bone and joint health. There is much to discuss, and it's sure to be another great episode. So subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to have that episode delivered directly to you the moment it goes live. And share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field, You'll also find the Global Hemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corneluk, our editor, Jose Miguel Baez, our research assistant, Jessica Lauren Richmond, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. Special thanks to our senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, and our featured advertiser, Sanofi. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you have been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time.
Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals.